Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Hi, welcome to another episode of Craft Sanity. This week we're going to hear the story of a fine artist living a very creative life on the outskirts of Marfa, Texas. Her name is Catherine Shaughnessy, and she's a 36-year-old mom and a very creative lady, making a name for herself in the craft world as the creator of wool and hoop cruel embroidery kits. She's also the author of the fabulous book called The New Cruel, Exquisite Designs and Contemporary Embroidery that was published by Lark in 2005. The cool part about this show is I got a chance to reconnect with Catherine, who I met back in 1998 when she was the artist-in-residence at Central Michigan University, and I was there wrapping up my journalism degree. It was just a wonderful experience because Catherine showed us some really cool ways to use traditional, what we think of as craft, you know, crafty methods like knitting and quilting and stitching, and she really encouraged us to use these skills and techniques in unusual ways. So we dabbled in weaving and stitching and several other needle crafts and fiber arts. I was just completely inspired to continue with this, and I was kind of sorry that it was my last semester because at that point I didn't have you know the, the opportunity to be on campus and take more classes. So as soon as I paid off my student loan, I bought a loom and then a spinning wheel and then another loom, and well... I have tons of craft supplies now, and I don't know if I'd have all that stuff if it wasn't for Catherine. I got hooked on fiber art that semester back in 1998. And so you can imagine how thrilled I was when I stumbled across Catherine's website and realized she'd written a book. I'm so happy this week to bring to you a conversation that we had recently. So stick around and hear more about her life, her craft, and her cross-country adventure that led her to a little art mecca in West Texas. We talked about exactly what city you're in last time, but can you remind me? Well, I'm not. That's the problem. Oh, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. you're, where, where exactly are you? You're, when um, people ask you, how do you explain this? Well, I'm near um, a town called Marfa, Texas. That's M as in Mary, A-R-F-A. Right, because I misunderstood and thought you were saying Martha, like yeah, Martha no. Stewart. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Martha, Texas, and I, but it's pretty far, it's near the border. We're, we're like a couple miles from the border, border patrol station, and a hundred miles from the border, or a little less than that, I think. Um, and it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. So the closest city is Midland, Odessa, which is about three hours away. Wow. Um. Yeah, so we're we're in the biggest county in the lower 48, but it's only got 9,000 people. As you can imagine, that's how sparse it is. So do you, can you go for a long period of time without seeing anybody? Like you don't have a neighbor um, telling you to, to quiet down no, over the back fence. No <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the little towns, there's lots of neighbors, like in the small towns, and there's lots of dogs and chickens and roosters, and you hear a lot of activity and kids and stuff, but... Um, but where we are, we're just south of one of the towns, so we're it's pretty remote here. And do you guys have kind of little, you have a little patch of land there? Mm-hmm. And how, how many acres are you on? Well, we're on a quarter section, which is uh, about 140 acres, but 
we only own a small portion of that. We just share it with a bunch of other owners, but nobody else lives here but us because they haven't built anything else on it. So, and then, so it's just a shared fenced-in area um, in view of three mountains. Wow. And um, there's, like, a lot of animals roaming out here, like antelope, and we have two horses and about 25 chickens and um, two kitties and <laughs> lots of bunnies and jackrabbits and other crazy animals. Can you tell us a little bit about why you, um, how it is you came to live in Marfa, near Marfa, Texas there? Um, okay, the, the, I guess long answer, short answer, whatever, is that we, uh, my husband and I were living in Chicago, and it's sort of a 9-11 story, which is unfortunate. I hate to tell 9-11 stories, but it kind of is connected to that. We, I had been in New York during the whole episode and saw the whole thing and was kind of trapped down in Soho and whatnot, and um, kind of worked my way back to Chicago. And after that, that year had just been, that was like the tip, the tipping point. We had all these weird bad things that happened in the city where we were lived in. My husband had gotten mugged and I don't know, just like a lot of other just really just ugly things. So we finally were like, let's get out of the city. Let's, you know, leave what we've got, sell our house, buy a little van and travel around the country. And 9-11 really was an inspiration for that because I just felt like I really wanted to get out of the city. I just was wigged out and, I don't know, just wanted to try something else. So we did just that, took to the road. We were gone by, I think, maybe, I'm not even sure when, how soon after we left. And we, um, we it took us just a day to sell our house, and then we just hit the road, and we headed to Canada, and then we went west, and then we kept going across the country, and a friend of ours had said, and he also was doing a story for not for National Geographic down in the um, on the train tracks because after 9-11, they thought nobody would take planes anymore. So he was on Amtrak doing these, like, cross-country trips, mm-hmm. discovering little towns. And he had found this little area down here and said, hey, if you guys are cutting across the country, we were just taking jobs wherever we could. I'm a, I was painting murals and developing up my cruel business um, from the van, and Tom was writing for Encyclopedia Britannica and some other things. And so we just, like, we had the time and the, you know, what... The gas wasn't as expensive back then. And so we went south and just headed, headed over there and we were cutting through anyway. So it's really off the beaten path. There's just, it's not a destination place. You just have to like, I mean, it's not a cut through, like it's destination. You have to just be on your way there. So we like came down here and fell in love with it. And then we just kept coming back and I did a couple jobs here and, and we just loved it. We met some really wonderful people and loved the environment. I mean, it's so different from anything we'd ever known and it's mountains. So it's not like, what I ever would have pictured Texas to be, um, either by the communities or the landscape. So we, it's like, you know, we had, we've had snow out here and it's, we're, we're about a mile high. And, um, so yeah, we just kept coming back and eventually we were just like, let's just live here. So where were you going when you, you say you, you kept coming back? Like where were you, where else were you well, we going? We were living on the road. I'm sorry. So we were living in this van, this little camper van. How long did you live in, in the van? Uh, I think about a year and a half. Oh, wow. Just was, going various fun, places. It was tight, tight community. You know, we got rid of everything and, you know, just lived, lived, we put, put some stuff in storage and just figured out how to live really simply. We figured it out. It was great. I mean, you can do it. It's not that hard, you know. You just figure out what you need. You have two pairs of clothes and, you know. <laughs> well, and we just kept traveling around the country and we would do jobs, like we went and babysat somebody's, my sister's kid and we were traveling like across the coast, you know, back and forth back and forth between the coast, and so that's sort of how, um, and we had to keep south because 
a lot of the time it's winter up north and you don't want to drive in a camper van up in the northern parts where you're going to be on ice and snow so you got to stay south anyway and so how how soon after 9-11 were you guys on the road and it just had simplified your life? It sounds like you pretty quickly made the decision to yeah, just kind um, of simplify. You know, I cannot even remember because I know we left around Thanksgiving, but I can't imagine that we had done it that quickly. I feel like maybe it was a whole year. Like we decided to do it, but it took us a year to like... To get everything wrap, ready. Wrapping up. I think it must have taken us a year because we left in November... I, were you just on a trip to New York when this happened, or were you actually staying there for a while? I was on a trip. I just go to New York whenever I can. Just I was looking at art and visiting with friends, and that's what I I just get there as much as I possibly can because I like I love New York and um, always think I'm going to move there, but not till I'm old. I think I'm going to move there when I'm an old lady. Really, a lot of people go to New York when they're younger and then move out to the country when they're they're I know, older. I'm do just the opposite. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. So so you you ended up settling. Um, on the patch of land you're on, and did you have, it sounds like this was, you went from the van right to the place you are right now. Yeah, we kind of looked around a little bit, and we were looking for just a patch of land. We didn't know what we were going to live in or whatever, and we found this place, and we camped, they let us camp out on it for a couple nights before we actually seriously considered buying it, so that was kind of nice. And, and it wasn't too far from, say, some facilities like a health clinic and grocery store and some of those things. It's about a 20-minute ride to those places, so we thought that's not too bad for, you know, a bunch of city slickers. And did you, did you consider yourself a city slicker even though you'd been living on the road for... Oh, yeah. Your, I mean, yeah. I'm an urban... I mean, I, I grew up sort of... I grew up in the city, but kind of suburban city in Cleveland, Ohio, but it's, you know... And then I'd live, but I'd lived in like Capitol Hill in Washington for a while and in Chicago for a while. So my whole adult life has been living in real urban situations. And yeah, I mean, this is so different. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're in, to let people know too that you're recently became a mom. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. How old is your daughter? She's five months old. That's a very fun age. Yeah, she's cute. And it's, yeah. <laughs> my life's upside down. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think if we can um, give people a little bit of background on just your career, I mean, and I also, in the interest of full disclosure, too, I'll, I'll tell people that um, I had the pleasure of being in your class back in uh, 1998 when you were, did they call it the Artists in Residence at Central? Yeah. yeah. Um, at Central Michigan University, and I took your, uh, it was a fiber art class, mm-hmm. and because of you, I have all these looms and spinning wheel and, and all this stuff and um it's so strange because i was thinking last night as i was preparing for this interview i'm thinking geez how different would my life be right now if i didn't you know because i set out to become a journalist and that's what i did mm-hmm. but um you know the, the things i learned in your class and you were great at taking because before i took a class it was like i did a lot of you know art and crafts but it was always very traditional very functional and um, never really occurred to me to use some of these techniques that I'd learned, like how to crochet, you know, to crochet or knit or um, decoupage something in a non-functional way because I was always just a traditional, mm-hmm. you know, crafter. And so in your class, I mean, I was doing everything from, you know, ironing plastic bags just to see what would happen to, you know, what the material would do. Um, you really, you know, kind of planted the seed to get us to do things, make a lot of samples. Um, you were really big on that. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about... Um, you know, just how you kind of got started as an artist and, um, you know, how maybe the time before I met you and then we'll fill people in on what you've been doing, you know, since that point. But so how did you get started as an artist? 
I had um I had always not wanted to be an artist because I thought it was too like you know frou frou and gratuitous and not you know serious enough. And I was really interested in math and science, so I was going to be a doctor. That was my whole plan. I was going to do that or be a physical therapist, but you have to take a lot of the same courses up until you graduate from college. Right. So I'd gone to um, a liberal arts college in Southern Ohio planning. I was a pre-med student, and I was I did that for two years, and that was my plan. I mean, I just was, I loved science. And then one day in one of my lab classes, my teacher, Mark, I'll never forget this, he was this really cool guy, and he said, Catherine, what are you doing in here? <laughs> it was like we were drawing all of these, like, amoebas and all these crazy cells and stuff on the slides <laughs> that he had there, and I had all my colored pencils, and I was making these beautiful drawings and stuff, not really caring about all the other details, but I was learning through drawing, and I was and thought, well, maybe I'll go into medical illustration, but whatever. So I, I was doing that, and he was just like, no, you need to, you know, go over to the art department. You should be an art student. So I actually, he was my inspiration. I, I that day, walked over to the art department and said, can I switch? And I was already two years in. So that summer... Between my sophomore and junior year, I switched majors, and I crammed four years of art-making, art degree, into two years. And wow. Took a trip to Italy with one of my teachers, which was a great experience. I, I just, it, that influenced my color palette and my, um, sort of just, um, my painting a lot, because I did painting. So you start out with a lot of painting and drawing when you do art anyway, and that's what they teach you first. And then, um, and I had some really good teachers there. That was at Miami, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Um, that were inspirational and whatnot, but I crammed it so done it so quick, and then I moved to D.C. and lived in Capitol Hill for a little while. I worked for an arts organization there called Very Special Arts, and I was applying to graduate schools, but I didn't get in because I didn't think I don't think I had enough experience. So I took this post-bac program at the Art Institute in Chicago, which is for people like who are switching careers because we had like I ended up taking that pro, getting in that program. It's a one-year pro- program. And we had a mix of people like architects and all these different people who are from different walks of life taking this. And then a bunch of us went on and got our graduate degree after that, which is what I did in fiber arts. And I guess um, my art really changed when I went there just because, kind of like what you're saying, I had teachers that really inspired me to just break all the rules and try and use all the different materials and really think about what material meant to the, the content of your piece, like the subject matter. Like it's not just about... I mean, whatever you use has, it plays a part in mm-hmm. what the piece means. And so I built a lot of sculptures and just had a lot of fun there and learned a lot. And it's a great community and a wonderful school. So um, that's kind of how it happened, I guess. Well, it sounds like you must have had, and you knew it about yourself that you know, art appealed to you. But was it startling at how quickly you're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, and you oh, walk yeah. right over and it was, And I've been making arts, and I've been taking classes, kind of sneaking in and taking painting classes and stuff on the side. And I'd taken classes through high school and at the Art Institute in, in Cleveland. And I'd taken, you know, just been making stuff since I was like five. I mean, I don't know. I just remember making, always making things. Like I had the Nature and Crafts Club, like in our neighborhood, you know. And we'd go outside and make things from rocks and sticks and stuff and I don't know. So, like, it was no big surprise. My parents didn't care. They were like, my mom's an artist, and they were just like, oh, yeah, sure. And I had an older brother, so he's a doctor now. He stayed with it. <laughs> what kind of art does your mom, did your mom do? Well, she studied painting and a lot of um, clothes, like um, fashion design and stuff. But then she had seven kids, so she never really did much with her art. I mean, she was a mom, you know, and she took care of all of us, and she didn't really um, pursue it in a way where maybe she would have liked to, but, I mean, she raised seven you know, human beings pretty well. So 
Yeah, that's I can imagine. Yeah, that. she didn't she didn't move in that direction and become a you know kind of professional artist in any way. But she made all her clothes and was just, she's just a very creative person. I don't know. So that's likely where this comes from for you. Probably, yeah. 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 So that's probably why she wasn't alarmed at all when you said. Um, right. Because for some parents, that would be an absolute. You know, I think they, they were they, relieved. They were like, "You can't go into science." <laughs> <laughs> well, because they know you. You know. Yeah. Well, some parents um, probably don't take it nearly as well when the child has these. You know, says they want to be a doctor, and then they come out and say, "Oh, actually, I'm an art major now." <laughs> the only thing worse probably would be to say you're an English major. <laughs> right. Right. Or they're about Thai. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how would you describe, you know, people ask you, oh, what kind of art do you do? I mean, what do you, do you describe, describe yourself as, uh, you know, I guess, well, how do you describe your, your art? Well, um, I don't do so much painting anymore, but I do use a lot of what I've learned in all my different like, sort of studies and whatnot, and I make sculpture that's that employs a lot of different techniques. So, in, what I've been doing for the last several years is I make um these little tiny, tiny, tiny sculptures, they're literally one inch by one inch by one inch dioramas. And um, I've done some bigger ones, but they're really tiny and these little, like, land landscapes. Um, and I started those because we were living in the van and I needed to keep my art going and I wanted to do something that I could put a shoebox on the road and that's what fit, um, was to make these little things and I had been making before that big installations, and you saw some of that, what I did um, in, up in Michigan when I was artist-in-residence up there. Yeah, the dough girl. Yeah, and I started this whole thing. Back to my whole interest in science and medicine, I uh, did a lot of research on cloning and bioengineering and um, cryonics, where you like for the freezing of bodies and body parts and stuff like that. And I was interested in sort of our, you know, playing around with Mother Nature, basically, and to always improve the the body, you know, human body and animal. I don't know. It's just, I'm so fascinated with with all of that. So I made a whole series of sculptures and kind of a storyline. And I always want to make a film out of it, but based on sort of that research and but did it in a whimsical way where it was sort of Disney, kind of scary Disney, I guess. Scary Disney. <laughs> yeah, I remember you even had a coloring book. Yeah. It's so part I tried of to it. make toys and there were dolls and, you know, all wrapped up and packaged. Um, and... And that has now, that kind of subsided a little bit, and then I made this non-objective stuff that was these little landscapes that were just really beautiful, simple little things in these dioramas. And now the last show I had in Marfa just this past month, um, I've kind of gone back to some of this, trying to connect, make these little scenes that have a little tragedy kind of going on between, and mostly it's these little birds that I that I draw that have human arms, and and they've given up their wings, so they have human arms, but now they can't fly, but they can do other things, like they can hold a gun. And so I have this, like, little one where this little bird has just shot his friend, you know, and I don't know. So there's little, these little, but they're all done really tiny, and it's really hard to do them small. I'm kind of thinking I need to, you know, enlarge my um, canvas again. It's, now, how small How small are you talking for the bird? Well, they're, they're like I said, they're one inch. Oh, they're still in that same yeah, one inch by one inch. Yeah, two inch square, but then the actual stage that they're set on, and there's a light in there, and you can only look through a window that's about, um, it's about three quarters of an inch by a quarter inch or half inch, the little opening. Because I've seen the, the landscape you have on your website, quite right. a few of they're those. Similar the, to that. Okay, okay. That's so a, yeah. what are the birds made out of? Like, are you using the create, you know, doing a sculpture of a little bird, or how are you? 
Um, I tried that and I couldn't get them to be perfect enough that small. So what I ended up doing is I have, um, I used to work for a newspaper. I was in journalism a little bit down here. I worked for a local newspaper and I was doing illustrations. I was doing their graphic design and then I would also do illustrations of birds. People are big into birding out here because it's, I guess it's one of the best places for birds and stars and stuff in the country. And so anyway, I used to illustrate birds for a bird column. So I have all these little illustrations that I did that I then shrunk down to these teeny little, they're like, you know, half-inch tall birds. And then I, in Photoshop, I Photoshop them with the arms and everything, and then I cut them all out. So it's kind of like a little pop-up book, you know. I see. But they're, so they're not three-dimensional. Okay. That's what you mean. Well, I was trying to figure out how in the world, that would be really hard that small. That tiny, but. You probably have to go bigger if you. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you'll go insane, maybe. (laughs) This is all about crafting sanity here, so we don't want you to lose your marbles. But that was when you were at the Desert Mountain Times. Is that what the papers call it there? And you were also a graphic designer for. Didn't you do the whole layout? Yeah, kind of just the only reason I got that job and did that work was because I'm in a small town. And literally, I mean, I would never have gotten that job in a big city. I was the production manager at this small newspaper, this small, great liberal newspaper that unfortunately shut down. We were so sad. But. So I did the layout and design and did, took care of all the arts and, you know, anything creative and on that, for that newspaper. It was a weekly. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I learned a ton, but um, we were sad to see it go. So you've had um, various jobs, and it sounds like um, a lot of artists do tell me that when you do art, or even if you want to be a writer, uh, you know, writing novels and so forth, you sometimes have to, I mean, you have to do other jobs, you know, sometimes sure. to uh, to finance the art. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you've been open to that and really actually had quite a bit of fun, it sounds like, too. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to take, I mean, I've had a classic, like, office job in Chicago where I worked for an investment firm. You yeah. did? When did you do When did you do that? I think right after I got back from Michigan. I can't remember. Wait a minute. Remember. From after, after you taught the class at Central? Yeah, I think I did it. Really? After. You went and worked for an investor? I know. I, I never would have well, imagined that. They're hard to get. I mean, they're... And especially in Chicago, I mean, there's just so many, a flood of so many really talented artists. And then, you know, I don't know. And I just really was like, I need to pay off these debts. I was just crazed with my paying for three years of, you know, being in Chicago graduate school. So, so that's what I did. So I worked for this great firm. And it was funny because it was like, I can't believe I'm going to this office. I hated it after a while. But I met some really nice people there. And there were some other fish out of water people there too, like artists and musicians and stuff. So we all kind of bonded and, you know. It worked. So did you feel almost like you were, I mean, did you feel like, you knew that that's not something you were going to do long term? Oh, you know? no, it was totally a, just a... Did you feel like you were, like, in a play or something, <laughs> going on, in playing this role, but not yeah. really something that you're like, man, i got to move up in this company, and, you know... No, and that's why I think it was refreshing to be in there, because the people, my coworkers and my boss, they, they, we really enjoyed each other, because I was just in there, just, I just was so not on the same wavelength as them, but I had fun, and I... I'm smart enough to figure out how to, you know, organize their... I was just like a executive assistant type thing. So I just, like, organized their lives and, you know, and left. <laughs> so. And they're probably better, much better for it, you know, now that they're organized, you know. Right, and I I, I forced a lot of art on them, you know, just because by proximity. Well, and how did you do that? Because I know that I'm always bringing little projects in to show people who really don't care to see. I mean, I just kind of show people, and it's yeah, not really right. optional for them. That, and I think... I'd be, like, begging for days off so that I could go finish work for a show that I was going to be in. I'm like, I really, or, you know, just taking my trips to New York. And then, you know, on Monday mornings, the water cooler people ask you, how was your weekend? And, you know, you tell them. And I was interested in things that were, they were like, why did you do? Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, they just, so you just 
tell people, and they're interested because they've never had any exposure to some to art. Sometimes, I mean, some, a lot of people I worked with. So, well, that's so that's kind of fun to educate at the water cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for te- did you think when you were in art school that you would want to teach? Like that that's part of what um, you were doing, or were you going in purely to be a professional artist? You know, I was think I was more aimed to be an artist, and I think in some ways I regret sort of my the way I looked at graduate school, like, there was a lot of networking going on that I was sort of oblivious to. And I was just kind of doing my thing and enjoying making art and, like, in this great city and, you know, all that stuff. I just, I didn't really play the game at all. I didn't really have ambitions that way. So I missed, I think I missed the chance to meet a lot of people and kind of network into the academic scene. But then again, there's a lot of politics in that and it's a lot of, I mean, even though I love teaching, the little bit of teaching I've done, um, it's a, I don't know, it's a pretty big commitment to do. And it affords a lot of certain luxuries to be a part of an academic community and you get health insurance and, you know, perks like that and you get to, it keeps you on your toes as far as keeping up with, you know, current, the current trend, you know, like art world. But I don't know. I don't know. I still might pursue it. And there's a university here I'd love to teach at um, that's similar to the one up in Michigan. That's just kind of, kind of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and they have a great art department that, you know, I'd love to jump in on. But well, I guess the only reason I asked is because it it does seem like as an artist, it's one way that you know I'm sure a lot of art professors enjoy having a way to afford to be an artist, you know, in a way. Yeah. And I know when I took your class, I felt slightly a fish out of water because my roommate was an art major, and so we decided to take the class together. And I know we did critiques, you know, of, of work, and I always felt like. I wasn't quite sure if what I was doing was really art, you know, because you just feel like, okay, I glued some I decoupage like potpourri onto vinyl mm-hmm. in a circular oh, yeah. pattern, and I actually had it hanging in my house for a very long time. And people would come in and they look at it and they'd be like, um, kind of like, what is that? You know, like, what are you doing? You know, kind of thing. But I thought, geez, I spent like forty hours doing this, so I'm gonna hang it up, you know. Um, and I did some other thing where I glued rocks, like plastic rocks, onto a pair of like vinyl pants I found on a clearance rack at Sears or something for our wearable art, which I think was very marginal because I just glue gun the stuff on. Yeah. Uh, I think I was in a little time crunch there. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember it, but when I stood up on the table, one of the racks flew off no, and I remember, hit somebody. I <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm just like, I could have been worse. I could have split the pants or something because they were a bit of a tight fit before I glue the racks on. But the thing, I mean, and I guess I'd I like to get your thoughts a little bit on just – when people are coming from the traditional crafts that they might love to make things and but don't consider themselves an artist, how do you know if you're? I mean, when you how do you know if you're really creating art? I mean, is everything art in your opinion, or I mean, what what takes it to that next level where people should consider it art? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I don't I don't know. It's like the whole art versus craft debate. The difference would be sort of your mindset going into it and and. Because um, I, I feel like, just because I do both art and craft, so I feel like craft is more, to me, physical, and it's more about this repetition and making something that's often functional, but not necessarily, but um, it's more about the process. Okay. And I think, and, and you know, there's plenty of artists that might disagree with me, because when they speak of art, because they might think art is all about, because there's artists that make work that's so much about the process, and it's it's not so content-driven, it's more... Processes the content, mm-hmm. but for me, I guess in my personal work, my art 
it's a whole other part of my brain when I go into my studio and make art. I also make my crafts in the house, but for my art, I feel like I have to go to the garage or I have to go to the basement <laughs> or I have to go to this kind of dirty, like, off the scene, you know, away from everything else place and, and spend this, it's like meditation and it's like I have to really, and I have to do a lot of research for it often, like, to, um, depending on what I'm working on, but it's usually based on some sort of political, intellectual, you know, social statement that I'm trying to, like, you know, uncover for myself or whatever. So, um, and there's definitely a blend of both. There's often, this, it's such a great thing that's going on right now in, this, in the sort of craft art world, I think, where there's this total blend of everything. But, um, but there's probably a silent war between the two as well. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. But I do both, so. Well, I, I think... I remember in your in your class um, when we do critiques, there would be people that come in, and I came up with some funky stuff myself that I was like, you know, I don't really know if this is going to pass in section or not because I, like I said, I never had any art experience, like official right. art right. experience. But I remember one project, someone came in with like this, like sticks, and like it looked like a giant kind of man- um, man-made tumbleweed kind of thing, dirt and sticks glued onto a piece of paper, like cardboard or something, or board, and I was kind of, like, I looked at my friend, and we kind of looked at each other, like, like, and I had just spent 40 hours, like, gluing, (laughs) decoupaging, like, uh, potpourri seeds into the circular pattern, then I saw this, and I thought, geez, I could have done that in, like, two seconds, you know, I mean, and and that was my non-artistic viewpoint at the point, and you did influence some change in my thinking, but my friend and I were sitting there, like, oh, come on, you know, kind of, but, and, and I guess, how do you, but do you think, because a student comes in and has, like, this this artistic, like they're, they're go, they spend time thinking of, and not to minimize this project at all, but I just, I think that, you know, when you get into general population of people, they might walk through a gallery and there's some abstract work going on, and people think, oh, I can do that in two seconds. Well, probably they, they couldn't. couldn't. They didn't. So yeah. that's always the problem. I mean, you're right, and there are some pieces that, yeah, I, mean, I would probably agree are really bad or, you know, don't work or whatever, and yeah, it's, but. I don't think the time has anything to do with it, like how much time you put into something. It's all, it's like poetry. I mean, like, or choice of words for when you write a sentence. Like if you're, if, you know, words are your art, I mean, it may, some, some things may come up in a split second and you're like, and it's like, ah, oh, I'm genius. I just, you know, came up with this little thing, you know, whether it's a sentence, a poem, a, a story idea, or a sculpture, or a painting, or whatever, or it may take, you know, 30 years. I mean, um, I had a, um, an artist once told me that when people ask him how long it takes him to do his paintings, he does these huge, huge paint mural things. He said he he would say however old, however old he was. So because it takes, it's taken him that long to get to that point. So every bit of his life is going into each piece that it's you know all cumulative. I think that's a really interesting because I think everything we do, obviously, our life experience and the knowledge we have is cumulative. So. Right. And I was going to say, too, about, like, teaching in a class sort of like that where you've got students who are taking it as an elective and they're not, they're not planning out to be, like, a professional artist. Like, that's not their, they're not, there's not their goal. Or they're, they're just trying to learn, kind of get on the inside and figure out what art is or, you know, but, or they could have just been wanting to learn how to weave or to, you know, embroider or whatever. But I think that, um, it's a little difficult in that because you've got, it's easier, I think, to teach for me, to teach students who are all focused on making art, not craft, because, or if I'm going to be teaching craft, teach craft, because it's like an unspoken understanding that everybody has. So then you can all 
speak the same language and you know, okay, we're talking about art here. We're not talking about craft. And that, they are very different things. Like I'm going to go, I'm leaving next week. I'm going to New York and then I'm going up to Boston and Maine and stuff and I'm going to teach some workshops and it's totally craft. We're not going to talk about art. It's not about that, you know, and I don't have a problem with that, but it's just a different thing. Um, and in my mind, it's simpler. It's like easier to do that than it is art. Because I think a lot of people struggle with trying to figure out, okay, if they're at home and they're really good at embroidery or they they weave, but they weave scarves that are practical or they rugs for the floor. Um, people have a hard time, I think, figuring out, like, to think, wow, it'd be so cool to be an artist, but people aren't really quite sure you know, really how to go about that. I mean, do you have any thought on what a person can do to push it from craft to art? Well, I think the first thing you should do is look at, like, do look at his art history and you just it's sort of, or look at contemporary art, what's going on around us, and sort of um, as in, as inspiration and as knowledge, just to increase your knowledge, because we look at other crafters, so why not look at other art? When, you know, you just sort of study what's around you, but then also, um, I mean, what I was trying to teach, like when we had that class together, was that um, I think that the material didn't, like not to get stuck into, like if you're going to crochet something, you don't have to crochet, you know, um, with yarn. With yarn, yeah. yeah, right. I was gonna say what you're crocheting. You've been up to oh, okay. I was sorry. Yarn, crochet like baby boots or something. Like, right, right. You crochet with metal or what did you crochet with? Um, I used um, actually. I did a little dumpster diving. It's pretty ridiculous what I did. I made a likeness of a newspaper and I decided that we bound the CM Life at Central was bound with this this string right. that would just get thrown in the dumpster, mm-hmm. and it was ink stained by the time. It, you know, because it had been on these papers that the ink would come off. And so what I started doing is collecting the string and I tied it into a ball. So it kind of was, I mean, it was close to being traditional yarn. I mean, closer than using wire or something. But um, I would go around and I got my friends to um, collect it. Like they'd see a ball of it in a hallway that had just been thrown down next to the paper, stack of papers. And then I got um, <laughs> the guy who ended up, Jason, bless his heart, who ended up being the best man in my wedding later. <laughs> Um, climb into a dumpster because I couldn't reach <laughs> a big ball of it. I'm like, oh, that would be so perfect for my project. And he looked at me like, oh, you're kidding. You're, you don't really want me to do this because we're trying to fish it out. <laughs> and oh so I, I think he was actually able to help me get it with a stick from the outside. But, um, I mean, we were just I – mean, people were probably wondering what the war, in the world. And then when they see what we pull out of the dumpster, like we're really fishing around for a while and it's this ball of string that's ink-stained. <laughs> but see, your finished product on that was your finished piece – piece of art was so much more content filled and inspiring because of all that history and because you like piece these together, the string each came from this newspaper, then you're recreating it into the shape of the newspaper. And that's to me art because you so I guess it's 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 got so many layers of meaning as opposed to if you you know, just crocheted a blanket. Well and I think the confusing part for me with the whole you know, with art is that you know, I I tend to do everything in a very complicated way. You know, <laughs> doing projects, I'm like, oh, I got to do this step and then this, and then oh, it'd be really great if I did this twelve other things, and then you know, fifty hours of missed sleep later, I have something. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not real sure if that worked, but um, and then I, you know, so for me, walking into a room where someone might have, I think someone else in the class had a, like a black, some kind of drape that they put over themselves and. There were pins sticking out of it. So if you were to hug them or whatever, oh, there would yeah, be. I that. Yeah, and I was kind of confused because I'm like, okay, I could logically explain. Like for me, I could I could say, okay, you know, this is I'm recreating this, this newspaper, and but I didn't quite 
really understand, like, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm trying to understand, like, like why you put pins in a thing and then try to hug somebody. You know, I mean, it's just, so it was kind of like, I guess, and I think what I learned from that is everyone approaches it with your, your experience and, and what the message you're trying to get across as influences the work you do. And, you know, I just was coming from this background where, you know, in my, all of the classes I took, you had to have a logical explanation for everything you did. You know, it had to be something right, everyone right. else got. Because in journalism, if you don't connect with your audience, then you're done. You know, you, you're, you're wasting your time. And so art, the thing that's so cool about it is that, you can act, I mean, you can, you do your art and then everyone who views it brings something that's part of the shared experience of art is you create something and then people, the part of the art doesn't occur until someone looks at it, you know. Right. And it come alive until it's interacted with or. Yeah. So for me, it was really, you know, challenging to kind of shake loose of not being sitting there, you know, kind of saying, oh, please, you know, I mean, because you didn't want to be like this, well, this non-artist sitting in the classroom of artists, you know. <laughs> um, I think just giving myself the creative license to, to say, you know what, if I want to put pins on something and, you know, wear it, that's my, you know, that's, I'm free to do that, you know, and I think for a good part of the semester, I was really feeling like I had to do things that made logical sense. And, and have a permanence, too. I think that's a big hang-up with making um, art and craft is that people assume that you're going to make something that's got to be hold up through time. So you're making something that's actually sturdy and will hang on a wall or sit on a pedestal or whatever, but... A lot of art is about performance and about the moment, so it right. doesn't disappear, and it's okay, because I don't know if you remember the other student who did those origami out of big newspapers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she floated them all in, like, the pond and put them on the tracks and put them up and down these steps, and she did... So her piece actually lived on in the photography that she did by documenting it, and those pieces will never exist in time because they're just made out of newspaper, and they were floppy, and the wind and rain got to them, I'm sure. But And I love that about, you know, that's... Because I think... She hadn't thought of that before at the beginning of the class, and then kind of taking, I don't know, more permanent things and making them just performance art and installation art was really exciting. Well, and that's why I thought you did a great job at, at doing that, because like I said, I don't know if I would have been as equipped, because when I graduated, uh, you know, went on to my, geez, I graduated on a Saturday, started my real job that I'm currently in on a Monday. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I've been Did you graduate that spring? Yeah, I graduated that spring. It was just by a total fluke that you ended up there that semester, you know, when I had, an, you know, an extra room in my schedule to, to take the class and, you know, the weaving. I mean, I just love, I got in there and I'm like, man, why is this my senior year? You know, it stinks. It was a fun class. It was really good. Well, and it's one of those things that I think that um, I've kind of been fighting the art bug because I've just felt like I have to be practical. Mm-hmm. I have to be responsible. And it's just um, kind of ridiculous because um I'm always thinking about art and projects I can make. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's going to be a, a you know a point you know where I'm just going to surrender. Um, yeah. you know, because I mean you can only fight this so long. You know? No, you can't. And I always feel like if you have it in you, you will go crazy if you ignore it, if you like deny it, because it's sort of like a little sickness. Like you've got this bug that you can't change who you are. And I don't know. I mean, I totally had it and tried to deny it and be a doctor, and that was a joke. So. I'm you could just think of all the cool stitching you'd be doing on people. <laughs> people would wake <laughs> up and they'd be like, you'd be like, yeah, you know, I used a kind of a couple French knots there. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen when that heals. But <laughs> can I take a picture of your abdomen for my portfolio? <laughs> oh my God. Well, it's funny two things. One is I did have, I've had a lot of dumb surgeries myself. I just have dumb luck with like just my life, whatever. And I, I have like, I had to, doctor doing surgery on me and they were doing this scope and like checking out my insides and I like I wanted to look at the video and I was like all into it I was into the stitches into the 
they were like tumors or whatever. It was like really kind of, a, that's a long other story, but I was so interested in it. And he was like, you're a wacko. Like, you're like, like why would you want to deathbed? And I was like, no, I want to check it out. Um, and then I would say the other thing is my brother, who's a doctor, he's an eye surgeon, so he does really delicate, detailed little stuff. And he's an amazing artist. Like, he, he's quite good at drawing. And I mean, he never took it to the next level of, like, what I was saying before, like, making, filling with all this content and everything. And he, but he's, he can draw really well, and, you know, he builds anything he can put his mind to. I mean, he's a great carpenter, but I always thought that was kind of interesting that there's a connection maybe with doctors, you know, being artistic and being a doctor. Maybe there's something there. Well, they're definitely doing some stitching. You yeah, know, you have to be able to stitch to be yeah. a doctor, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't researched this, but I'd be really curious to see. Like, I'd like to visit a medical school on the day they learn how to stitch. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, because I'm interested in, like, how do they, like, how do they teach it? And how similar is it to to what we do when we have our embroidery hoops, you know? I mean, obviously, we're not, you know, stitching on living things, you know? I mean, it's still, like, you're stitching, and there's different, probably different folds and different stitches you use, and they probably have different names for them. That's an interesting, I wonder. I should ask my brother. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because he's a doctor. Yeah, so you have access to yeah. that. Yeah. I so I don't know. Maybe that'll be an episode of Craft Sanity. I'll go um, learn how to stitch somebody up. You know. Um, <laughs> so do you feel that everybody is an artist? No, no, definitely not. And how do you know if you're not an artist? When I went and worked at that job at the investment firm, yeah, there was another woman there, and it's like we clicked right away. Like we knew we were both on the same planet, and we didn't belong in this planet that we were in. <laughs> but we knew, and there were no. It's almost like you don't need to. We didn't need to. Um, to ask them out. Yeah. Was button we had to wear. It was just like, we know that we're both artists and, you know, to hell with the rest of them. No, I'm just kidding. But like, <laughs> you know, like, they're not going to understand us, so let's just bond together, you and I, and we'll, you know, get by as we can. But yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Well, I think sometimes people, I kind of know, I guess one of the ways I know if someone's not really open to the creative art thing is when you tell them something you're doing, they look at you like you just said, you're oh, yeah. going to like rob a liquor store and then, you know, <laughs> fly across the country. I mean, it's just... Or they try and change the subject really fast. Or they're like, oh, that's nice. And then, you know, go on with something else. You know, so so maybe that's the criteria. If people just aren't feeling it, the vibe isn't there, you right. know. Um, well, I think it's really interesting because I was, you know, just how I kind of reconnected with you is I was searching around for, um, I was looking for cool people interview, and so I do a lot of surfing on the Internet. And I, I came across um, your book. You know, and I can't remember if it was listed on somebody's website or if I was looking on publisher websites or whatever, but The New Cruel, Exquisite Designs in Contemporary Embroidery, and I see the name Catherine Shaughnessy, and I'm like, Catherine Shaughnessy? I took a class from her, and I'm like, no, that can't be the same kid. What? what? I don't know. If it, and then I, I looked in it, and I'm like, yeah, I can totally see this. Uh, this is this is Catherine. And it's pretty tame, though, compared to my other art, right? Well, it was different, and that's the thing, because I'm thinking, okay, she did Go Girl, and it's now so the new yeah. cruel. I was I was at first I was like, wow, that's so different. But then I was like so excited about that because I'm like, you know what? That is so awesome to see such a spectrum. You know, because I think that's another thing that people make the mistake um, of thinking that they have to stick to the same medium and stick to the same. You know, kind of it's, it's dangerous to step outside what you've been tra- you know doing all along. And I admire those people though, so much. I wish I was one of those people. The, Always. The I, steps I was outside. so disciplined that I would just focus on one thing and that's all I did. And I oh, was, you don't want to do that. 
Pardon me? Yeah, I don't think you'd want to do that. You know how boring no, that would be? You. I totally you do? wish that that was me, and I never have been like that, and I don't know why I always strive for that, but I don't really strive enough because I'm not there. I'm totally doing a thousand different things. <laughs> well, I don't think, I don't know if you'd be happy. I know I certainly wouldn't be happy if I only did one thing because yeah. I couldn't pick one thing. That's the problem. I do about a thousand things. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I, well, the bad part is I don't feel like I do any of them. I mean, I'm just, I think, geez, you know, if I did just one thing, Maybe I could be like super fantastic at it, like the best in the world, you know. Yeah, but there's well, no chance. Saying. That's why I wish I was more focused. Yeah, there's no chance for me because I do too much. But what is it for people um, that are trying to understand? Okay, what is the difference? Is cruel is in the embroidery family, I and mean, what is the difference between yeah, cruel and regular embroidery? Cruel embroidery is just a form of embroidery. It's and the only thing that kind of separates it from other embroidery because it has a lot. Of, it shares a lot of the same stitches, and you can buy like a embroidery book if you wanted. Like a, I have one that's like an encyclopedia of embroidery stitches and thousands of stitches that people have like sort of invented over you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then cruel embroidery is just that it's made with cruel wool on linen, and the wool is like it's just a double ply twisted wool. Worsted wool is what it's called from a town called Worst, I think Worsted in England years ago. They were the ones that first started using this and it's pretty, um, it's, it's thicker than, you know, using like, say, embroidery floss or cotton or silks or something like that. And it, and then doing it on the linen. Linen is really a tough, tough, tough fabric. It's way stronger than cotton or silk and it can withstand a lot more, um, kind of beating. And wool is pretty, a pretty tough material as well. So um, they work well together. And, I mean, the only problem with it is that it's um, kind of not, you know, washer-friendly. <laughs> right, you can just washer. throw it in the wash. Like, so if you're going to do stuff on clothing, I would advise doing, like, probably using cotton threads or polyesters or, you know, like, mix stuff. And Or if you just want to wash it in cold water and hang it dry, that's cool, too. And then you can use wool and use it on stuff like that. But... Yeah, so cruel wool is just a type of embroidery. Can, can you tell us the story of how you made the jump from uh, doing some of your more, you know, the, the art that you were doing, you know, these dioramas and the the just sculptural pieces to to cruel? Well, um, just so you know, like all along while I've been doing this cruel thing, it's been split half and half. Like I've still been trying to make my art while I was doing this. And the whole reason it happened, it's pretty simple. I was... For years, I've been looking for cruel kits and kind of always checking out what's in the little craft thing just for, like, side stuff for me. And also, I have lots of nieces and nephews, and I like to buy them crafty things as opposed to toys and, you know, crappy stuff made in China. So I would always check it out. And, you know, they sometimes there's good latch hooks or there's good whatever. But I And I used to do all that stuff when I was a kid, cross-stitch, embroidery, latch hook, all that stuff. And I just didn't like anything that I was seeing. And I... We'd always come back, and I'd complain to my husband, Tom. I'd be like, ah, oh, such bad stuff. They don't have, I can't find anything I like, you know? And it was just me just complaining because it was nothing. Nothing fit my sort of style or my interest. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes I'd find some vintage stuff that I kind of liked, or there'd be a few things I liked, but generally I wasn't so into it. So he said, why don't you just design your own? I'm like, no way. And he just really pushed me to do it. He said, I really think you could. And I think he just really liked the word cruel. <laughs> He's a writer. And did he, he know what it was? I mean, did he know? No, he didn't know what it was. He just thought, cruel, that sounds great. We could play, you know, it's a good, fun word play word. Anyway, he, he just, and he just thought, he was really thinking and watching me over all these years struggle trying to, like, have a job as, you know, at an investment firm or, you know, whatever, teaching or whatever, and try and make my art. He's like, I think this would be good because you could, 
you have this skill. You've been doing this for years on the side. It's sort of connected to your art. A lot of your art is fiber-based, and you could just start a little company. Then you could maybe work from home, and if we ever had kids, maybe you could do it be easier because you could be working from home, all this stuff. He was kind of like, you know, figuring this out in his head, and he just really encouraged me to do it. I would never have done it if he hadn't, like, really pushed me to do it without barely asking me to the Dallas trade shows. It's a, like, craft show, big craft show. And so we we had that as our goal. And so we had to get the kits done and in, you know, bags and everything finished and our pricing and all that finished before the show, which we scrambled to get ready for. And, um, and yeah, I, that's how I started it, basically. I mean, we came up with five designs, and I kind of did it in a, in a rush, probably. But but um, since then, I've taken a lot of time with it, and it's been fun. And the book took me about a year to do, and that was a lot of fun and a lot of work. But um, I stitched till my hands were... <laughs> Or raw, but it's um, um, so it was real. It was a great exploration. It was back doing a lot of research, and you know, we I wrote a little history of cruel in there, and um, talked with a lot of different people, and just kind of went back to what I was interested in as a kid. You know, what I the stitches I liked when I was younger, and um, and that I'd been using throughout in art and other things because I stitched together like paintings and stuff like that. Like I would use it in my other work, so. Does that answer your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, well, and you have a picture of um, a piece you did in 1979 <laughs> from oh, the store. And that's one from a kit, and it's just some little thing that, you know, my, my mom had given me to do, and I don't know. When you um, decided that you were going to do this, how much time from the point that you and your husband, your, your husband said, hey, why don't you, you should do kits, how long did it take him to convince you? And then how long after that did you have to, you, were, you know, how long until you got fully up and running with this as a business? Well, um, I think it took about a, over a year to convince me, maybe, because I had sort of thought about it as an idea, and I think that was part of the problem, is I had sort of thought about it and then ruled it out. So maybe about a year, and then and then it took us about a year to sort of do a little research and figure out, you know, I don't know, just all this packaging stuff and how to do UPC symbols and how to start a company and all this stuff, which I still haven't figured all that out yet. But, um, so... Because I know we started it. I remember thinking about this when I was still in Chicago. And then we left. And then so we were on the road for about a year and a half. So I was working on it while we were on the road. And people were telling us not to do it. My business cousin, who's really smart in business, said, she looked at my business plan and said, no way, it'll never work. You'll lose too much money, <laughs> which I have. But <laughs> but um, it did much better than she could have ever imagined. She was like, oh, my gosh, you know. And she loves stitching and stuff. But she told me not to do it as a business venture. And what year did you actually launch it? We actually launched it in 2004, in February. Okay, so, so it's only been a couple of years. Two years ago, yeah. So it took us a year. We started, I guess, a year before that, getting it all together. And um, and then, yeah, so I guess we've been in it about four years almost, of like from the beginning of the idea. So you had to figure out, you know, everything from the UPC symbols to packaging to suppliers, like where you're going to get your materials. Oh, the is hard. Because you can't get, I mean, can you get this stuff? I mean, it just seems like you can't really walk into your local craft store and get what you need for this. Right. That's part of the problem. And I'm hoping that with the, now it seems like there's this resurgence of cruel embroidery and interest in it that shops will start carrying things again like they used to. Um, I had a few shops, one out in California that really helped me out. They have wonderful supplies for a lot of needle pointers, and they have some cruel there because there are still some people who are doing cruel either from scratch on their own designs or a few kits that were still are still out there. So I really, you know, got some help from a few shop owners, and um, 
And then, yeah, it's really hard to find the materials, but basically I just asked around a lot, and going to the trade show was helpful because I met some people there who helped us with some, you know, there's printing issues, there's all kinds of issues that you've got to try and figure out, and um, and we get the linen from the Belgian linen that I get through a woman who distributed it out of New Jersey, Called the company's called Ulster, and I think they're the only ones that make this linen twill, and then... I get the wool from England also. It's um, Appleton Wool, and it comes through a company I get out of Texas who distributes it. And that's more common. That's in a lot of needlepoint shops because needlepoint uses the same wool. And then, um, yeah, and then there's just other materials that are hoops are hard to find. They don't make them here in the United States. I was trying to have everything made. Like, no, I didn't want it made, you know. I don't know. I wanted to package them all here and have as much stuff made in the USA as I could. But a lot of stuff's not even available here, so... And so the hoops, how are the hoops different than um, what people think of as a traditional embroidery hoop? Same, the same thing. Oh, it's the same thing. Okay, okay. And you can do use circular hoops or there's stretching, there's frames that you can use. Like you, you're working on big pieces. Um, there's ways to strap them to bars so that you can have this big flat thing, um, which is easier to work on if it's a bigger piece and it keeps it all stretched out flat, kind of like if you stretch a canvas for painting. Okay, so your point about the hoops is just that they're not being made in the U.S. right now? Right. It is interesting that there's so much crafting going on, and you know, and art with the fiber fiber art going on in the in the states. But it seems like we have kind of abandoned production of such yeah. things here. Yeah, the hoops come from Taiwan or something. I mean, I tried. There's some German hoops that I I um, got that I've gotten that are nicer. They're harder wood and smoother. But the the simple basic ones I get from. I mean, there probably are plastic hoops, but I for some reason have this thing against plastic. <laughs> <laughs> your preference is wooden hoops. I'm using wooden ones. I don't know. I just like natural materials. So you're in your company too. Um, woolen hoop is that what you call your? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um, so you saw how many different kits do you produce now? I have 11 different kits, and I'm about to launch the 12th one. It's a pillow kit that's um, as seen in one of the projects in the book that I came out with the new. Oh, kit. okay, okay. And so, so you're we're gonna I'm gonna debut those up, and I don't know when this is gonna air, but they're gonna go. Um, we're doing some workshops on the East Coast next week, and so we're going to bring kind of prototypes of those kits so people who sign up for those classes can get those kits early, and then I'm going to sell them eventually in our stores. And We have a lot of stores that carry our stuff and, um, and on my website. Okay, so what I'll, I'll link to that so people know where they can find these things. And then also um, you have a number they can call to to order. Is that how that works? Or they email you? Online or order by phone. Okay. Or, we, or I always try and encourage people to go to all the little shops that have already bought our stuff okay. instead of coming to me because... Is it easy? I mean, is that what you're trying to do is kind of be the... Eventually, yeah. I think it's much better to um, either walk into a shop and meet the people firsthand and see the stuff and, you know, talk to people always. And if you don't have access to those, because there's a lot of shops, but there's not enough around the country, but then go to the Internet and try and find one of the ones. There's five or six that sell them on their websites, and then there's me. So, <laughs> Are you overseas at all? Do you have your stuff in... A little bit, but not... We have a little bit in England and... Um, Bristol, go shop there, and then some stuff. This isn't overseas, but we have some stuff in Canada, and then I've shipped to Australia and a couple other places too. Um, but we don't get too many orders overseas. My website's kind of lame, and it doesn't really accommodate international orders. But I think some of the other websites might. So. Well, I know people around the globe listen to, to this. I mean, I have obviously most of the people are in the states, but um, are you willing to ship anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. But okay. it's just that. Um, if they want me to ship anywhere, they might want to email me because my website 
shopping cart doesn't always work so well. So we can do it. Okay, so it might be more complicated over, but if they contact you. Yeah. Okay, well, that that would be really cool. Um, yeah. You might get, well, it would be interesting to see um, how much resurgence. Um, it's only been two years since you got started here with this, but how does it feel to be bringing back something? Because I have to, I mean, if this book hadn't come out and you weren't selling these, these contemporary kits, I mean, I don't think it'd be nearly uh, as popular as it's becoming again. How do you yeah, feel about? Yeah, it's really fun. I'm 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 very surprised, but um, it's and it's been a lot of fun. And there is there's finally. I mean, we've been working at this for two years, like in the public, and it's finally um, there is something happening because you're seeing it on the craft blogs, and there's conversation about it. And I'm um, one of the workshops I'm doing up in in Portland, Maine. I talked to the owner yesterday, and she said her most requested workshop was embroidery and cruel, specifically. Wow. So people, and that was something that nobody would even have known what it was a year ago in a lot of these. And it's because it skipped so many generations that people, cruel embroidery, maybe your mother or your grandmother did it, but it kind of passed through, you know, so nobody even knows what it is, much less how to do it. It's not that complicated. It's just embroidery, but it's just the materials are harder to get, so... So is it interesting to you also that, I mean, you set out, once you decided to be an artist, you've pursued that and you've been working at your art for years now. And the thing that puts you on this, you know, map where people know your name across the country, um, you know, especially in the, in the, the whole world of cruel now and in crafts and so forth is that they know you as the, the woman who does cruel, but maybe not know as much about dough girl and some of the other installations right. you're doing. And it sounds like you're, your true love is still the fine art. Yeah, and I think that's my true, um, that's, that's the thing I have to work hardest at. I mean, that's, but it is funny because, I mean, you can't change who you are and what you are. I mean, I started sewing first before I drew or anything, you know, made sculpture or anything else. So, um, and I started, it was simple little stitching like this. So it's kind of funny that, of course, you are what you are and, I mean, you know, crafts have always been, I learned that first, and then I learned how, like we were talking about before, kind of like what art is and how you can turn craft into art by kind of intellectualizing it or whatever, you know, having it be more about, um, have, have it have more content than just, you know, stitching on a piece of fabric. So, um, I don't know, I feel it's okay. I mean, it's it's definitely my challenge is art, and that's the, always going to be the hardest thing, and that's what I'm most interested in, probably because it is more difficult, and it's but for me, it's much more rewarding and more fun. But the, you know, the cruel, I love it, and I love that it's kind of coming back because I have a really strong interest in in um, people doing things by hand and knowing how things are made, mm-hmm. whether it's you know a piece of woven fabric or a knitted scarf or anything. And so much of our materials that we wear and the food that we eat is made somewhere else, and we have no idea how to do any of it. And I, I think that's a really sad thing. So I'm so thrilled that people are learning how to dye a piece of fabric or weave it or spin it, spin the yarn that makes the fabric and all of these different things. I just think it can only be a good thing, and it's, it's um, more knowledge is better for everybody. Well, I'm just paging through, um, you know, the book that, um, th- your book here, and, I mean, these pieces are, are beautiful, and, I mean, I can see them framed and on the wall, you know, as art. You know, it's, it's not like a you're making a pot holder and you're going to actually use it to, you know, pick up something hot. I mean, this is really, really cool. And can you talk about the creative process a little bit? Like you say in the book that you carry around a, you know, a, um, 
a little sketchbook. Mm-hmm. And so these designs, do they all come from your sketchbook? Yeah, all of them. And um, I've been carrying around sketchbooks since I had teachers in at Miami and Ohio teach me that that's really part of the process, that you always have to be kind of writing your ideas down and drawing out your thoughts and whatever for all of my projects and pieces and whatever. I just use them as sort of a visual journal. And um, so a lot of the, the cruel embroidery designs in the book and my kits and stuff come from just patterns that I either see in nature or in, you know, in life, you know, just on, you know, building walls or wherever, you know, then I just kind of jot things down. And so actually, if you did look at some of my paintings, there is a similarity between the paintings and the cruel embroidery because there's a lot of sort of shapes and forms that kind of meld from one to the next and they they don't disappear even after 10 or 20 years. It sort of all keeps creeping back in. <laughs> well, I even noticed a, a similarity between the cruel uh, designs you have in your book and your landscapes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you see that as well, if yeah, I'm just no, out I, to lunch. I do, and I did a lot of that at the very same time, too, so it's hard to not have them be similar because I was working, I was building those landscapes at the same time I was building, you know, designing them. Well, I think it's wonderful to see the, you know, the different medium, you know, and, and just see the same, you know, kind of how everything coming from the same person you can all tr- you can trace it all back, and mm-hmm. the framing. Um, I think it's interesting that you have this kind of border on all these pieces, which yeah, is yeah. And I, I've actually told a lot of people that as far as you know, they're like, "Well, what do I do with cruel? Like, if I'm going to make cruel, and because I'm coming at it, I think from an artist perspective first, is that um, I I just soon just put them in a frame and hang them on the wall, or or not even frame them. Just I kind of look at them more as these like just pieces to sort of enjoy looking at, you know, as opposed to, you know, create, making them into something. I don't think that's always necessary. I mean, that's fine, and that's cool, and that's fun, and that's what some people really want and have to do, but certainly I think they hold up my pieces, and certainly I think, I hope that people will just make up their own, and I've been seeing that online. People have been taking pictures of their stuff that they're making inspired by um, my book or other crueling that's going on in the world right now and it's great because I just I think that's what it's about it's just then jumping off and making your own and framing it or doing whatever with it but um, I think of them as art kind of in some ways oh you think of them as art yeah oh definitely as opposed to trying to make them do something I think just frame them they're fine they're just they work as this little tiny piece that's you know well, and this might be the step that people who have traditionally done embroidery, like a pillow that they want to use and have it be have a practical, um, you know, use in their home. Um, I mean, you do have in your you know your book some instructions for the mason jar tops, soft tops for mason jars, which is really kind of interesting. So it never would occur to me to do that, but um, but then I look at that and I'm thinking, geez, well that's so beautiful. I mean, that would be like something I'd want to keep forever in that jar, you know, and have that on the top, you know. But it's really was it challenging for you to think of like, okay, how could how could someone take this and make it into something? Because that's really not your approach. You, you, as you said, you, you think they're just fun to look at by themselves. Right, and I have to be honest. I mean, all of those ideas, I think, are all from the ideas that I saw in books over the past years. I mean, I don't think there's one original idea in there. <laughs> Maybe there is, but, like, even the mason top jars. Those little, I remember doing some cross-stitch when I was a kid, and part of it was, you know, you see the little... You pop them on the lids and you put your jam in there and you had just cross-stitched the top. I mean, that's where I got that idea from. So, 
My the only thing I feel like I brought to the table was the designs. I was trying. Well, to... and I'd say that's obviously a major <laughs> major part of this book. I mean, you know, so don't minimize that. I mean, no, no, no. what do yeah. you mean? But... No, I was saying that without the designs, I mean, I don't think this book would be very good. Um, <laughs> I, well, I you. mean, you're, you're talking about no original <laughs> thoughts at all, blah blah blah. I mean, this is really no, but I mean, I really exceptional. The, the, the projects are all you know, it's a pillow. That's not. I didn't invent a pillow. <laughs> right, right, right. I you didn't invent you know an apron. An yeah, apron. I see. What all you're very classic. <laughs> application. So. Right. I'm sorry. I don't mean, I'm just laughing because I, I didn't realize how much I'd just stolen. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Well, I think, I think what it does, though, and I think a lot of these, um, you know, craft books are, especially those that are written by artists, um, are just kind of intended as jumping off points. I mean, is that kind right. of how you feel like you're, you're not saying that, okay, you must get the same skirt on page 95 and use the same color wool to embroider these same shapes, um, it sounds Not like you're you just want people to um to go out and have some fun. Um I am um interested in uh the difference with uh cruel and I don't know if we I don't think we already talked about this. Um the fact that there are no knots in cruel. Oh yeah. I think that's really interesting because people do use people use traditionally use knots for general embroidery. Um or are you supposed well, to not use knots? Sure. I I think the idea with a lot of embroidery and um cruel and even cross stitch and stuff is that you're trying to make, I mean, I don't know, this is like, I make the backs of my pieces really beautiful, as beautiful as the front if I can. Like, I try and make them without tons of stitches that cut across the whole format and that there's knots and bunched up threads and everything because I guess the idea originally is that you don't want all that stuff on the back because it would be lumpy then. So if it was functional, if you were trying to frame it or if you were, like, it was part of an outfit or a purse or whatever. So... And it's also expensive to not be conservative with your wool. And we don't think about those things as much now because, you know, we're, we live in a society that's so, you know, we have so much. But um, if you were spinning your own wool and all these things, you'd probably be a little more conservative with So you wouldn't make – I know this is a long answer to your short question, but the knots create a bump on the front. So, like, what I do and what I've learned, and this is what all the, you know, his, you know cruel books say, is that you – you kind of weave your thread through existing stitches to get started so that you're not creating this bump on the back. And then it looks pretty on the back as well. Yeah, because once you iron it or whatever, if you steam it, 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 it kind of disappears. And I know for cross-stitch and stuff, they did the same thing. I remember weaving. I don't do cross-stitch anymore, but I know you. if you can avoid a knot, you do. And there's a way I show it in the book how to start with a knot when you very, very first start because if you have nothing on your piece of canvas, you can't obviously weave it through anything on the back, so you have to start with a knot. But there's a trick to do it so that you eventually cut that knot off so you, you won't ever have any. So I know that's hmm, it's interesting, I guess, but it explains it in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it's it, I think it's really, and the instructions are good too, so it's pretty clear how to how to proceed with that. And um well, I think that this, I mean, this book's really great, and it's just so cool to see you um, having such success with it and getting a chance to go and teach folks around the country how to kind of get back to basics and get out there and and get uh, crueling, is that what you would say, or crueling, stitching? Yes, yeah. Yeah? Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a word, but yeah. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, never stopped me before, but uh, uh, so I, re- I read on the back of your book that um, you, you've gotten, you know, some reviews from HGTV and so forth, and um, I believe when we talked before, you said, do you watch TV at all? Like all these D- DIY shows and 
Do I? Yeah. Do you have? I don't even have a TV. No. So, <laughs> so I can't see anything. So you're not able to. You're not able to even know sometimes what you know what they're being what they're saying about your book on these shows. The internet is my connection to the world. So yeah. That's, so I, you see a lot on the internet. I mean, for all this stuff. But no, I haven't. I, I wish I had TV, but I don't. So do you have any? Um, well, I, I guess before we move off the, the cruel, um, mm-hmm. do you have any other things you'd like people to know about your your current you know your book or your kits or anything that anything else you'd like to say about that whole experience of stepping um, from art to the, craft? There's two, well, the one thing that I'd like to say is that I really hope that this book or and the other books and other embroidery that's going on by artists and crafters around the country around the world right now that it just inspires people to do more because I just think it's. It's a wonderful thing, and it's. I just hope that, like you said, people don't feel like they have to finish one of these projects, that they can then go and do their own thing and invent more stitches, because all these stitches are just invented by people, so just make more and um, and a- keep asking the small retailers for the supplies, because eventually, if enough people ask, maybe they'll start providing more wools and more linen twill so that you can do these projects and or, you know, just make your own. So, yeah. Go nuts is what my I would like to. <laughs> and what are your future plans? What's next? Uh, I'm going to keep um, developing more kits, more complicated kits, because I do have a lot of requests for things that are not just simple little beginner ones. Um, and have a couple more. Well, I have possible more books that are on the burner. Um, and I'm going to keep making my art. I've got a lot of plans for my for my sculptures and whatnot, and um, so I'm just going to kind of keep keep on the same track. I feel like I've finally nestled into something that feels like it could work. You know, I've been doing so many different jobs for so many years that I feel like hopefully I can have this crueling continue and keep inspiring people to keep making, and then that will help fuel my um, need to make more cruel and then also to make my art. Um, well, have you gotten to the point where this is an, this you can support yourself with? I mean, support your art, your other art with? No, no. <laughs> See, that's one of the misconceptions. Is it's hard to? There are people that I think aspire to. Oh, if I could do a book or do some kits, and then no, I can. No, I mean it's so it's so not true. Or I don't know. There's just there's not a lot of money in it. So it's I'm barely making it to just pay for because I I use all these really good materials, and that's part of the problem. Is you know, and shipping's expensive, and I mean, and my, I'm not making them. Um, we're assembling them all here in my living room. I mean, so it's not like we're, you know, um, I don't know. We're just, it's, we're doing it a little bit um, non-traditional or something, in the, or traditional. <laughs> so, no, there's not a lot of money in it. But it sounds like you're happy. I'm you're happy. I'm very happy, yeah. I just, and I, you know, hopefully it'll can just, just be enough so that I can stay at home with my daughter and um, continue making art and Crafts, yeah. And you said that you wanted to do some, you have ideas for other books. Will they be um, cruel books or are you thinking something totally different? You don't have to, you don't have to give up your ideas or anything here. I'm just, you don't have to like give up your ideas or anything here. I'm just uh, interested in whether or not you're going to continue with other cruel books or something. Yeah, they're on, they're definitely all embroidery related. So, um, and I can't, I don't want to say any more than that. Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, don't. So that's, so there's more in store. And Mm -hmm. uh, do you have anything, like any dates of when things will be coming out? No. No, you're um, still in the planning still phase. in the very early stages of stuff, so yeah. Well, that's um, exciting. But yeah, it is, it's, it's exciting, and I've got other, you know, other art plans that are, I feel excited about that I can't even really say until it happens, so. 
Yeah, I've learned the hard way that it's better to do do something before you start talking about it. Yeah. I would always talk about ideas, especially bad for writers when you, you talk about what you're going to do and then oh, you don't. Yes. You feel like then when you sit down to write something or to create something that you're kind of bored with it because you've been talking about it so much. So you already put it out there, yeah. So yeah. It is better, I think, to keep it secret until it's, you kind of give birth to it and then then it's then it can be, you know, I don't know, it's real. <laughs> so I think what I'll do is then I'll um, refer people to um, your website so they can kind of see. And do you give a listing of where your products are sold Absolutely. on your website? Okay, so yeah. people can look there, and if they don't see anything, then the best thing to do, they can send you an email if they'd like to get something. Um and hopefully, if um, people who own stores hear this, they can maybe, you know, contact you about getting things, uh, your products in their store so people can, uh, you know, because as people get into it and it gets popular, it seems like it would be a good business decision, right, um, yeah. <laughs> to bring your stuff to their store. Um, or even, because I mean, seriously, I seriously am not so interested in my business as I am the whole world of Cruel. Like, I really think that if people start just carrying the fabric in the wool, then people can do their own thing. But I guess everybody likes the kits to start off with, so maybe there'll be more kit makers. That would be great. How has your daughter becoming a mom influenced your art? And I know you've, you've, you know, she's not very old; she's only five months now. Yeah. But how how has that changed you or influenced you as an artist? Um, hmm. Well, it's it's been it's been a challenge. I mean, I feel like first of all, I don't know that it's changed my art yet. I've actually made some art while, after I had her and while I was pregnant with her, I did a huge, I got an award last year and had this huge sculpture due in October. I was due in December. I actually had her early December early, but, um, and my book came out in November. So I had a crazy year while I was pregnant with her and did way too much. I built this huge, huge sculpture that has teeny little dioramas in it. So it was an insane piece. But then this year I built some more and they, they don't have anything to do, I don't think, with her or her as a person, but I'm I'm almost fighting the mom thing just to make art, you know, because I feel like if I don't keep doing it, it'll never happen, you know. The funny, kind of funny thing about it is that all my friends and family know me as being this, like, super uber crafter. Like, I've just been making stuff for since I was a kid, and I just love it, and I always make gifts to give away to people. You know, they're always homemade. A lot of times they're homemade and stuff like that. So they all expected, like, oh, she's going to have a kid. It's all going to be, you know, she's going to have all her kids' clothes made, and it's room and you know I paint murals as another yeah another job I paint tree murals and yeah I saw that on your website yeah so um you know I always thought if I had ever a kid I'd you know do this mural thing and I'd you know make this cruel embroidery quilt and I'd make all her clothes because I make tons of clothes I used to anyway a lot more than I do now and just all these little things I thought I would do no can I just say that it's like the whole classic story of the shoemaker's child goes shoeless or whatever they <laughs> This is the story. Her walls are primed. They haven't even been painted yet. In her teeny little room that we built on, you know, this teeny little room, is totally not done. She has a bare crib with, like, nothing, you know, no curtains. <laughs> I, I put I put some dioramas. I had them built into the wall, and then I never finished them, so they're just these little three little lights in the wall on a switch. So I have intention, but it's just so funny that, of course, not, my friend came over the other day. She hasn't met the baby or come over here in, you know, a year, and she came over, and she's like, oh, I expected, like, this whole room done up like, you know, super crafty and I'm like laughing, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's, I know I'm making a dress for my daughter that, for my six-month-old that I started when my oldest is two. It was supposed to be a dress. It's six to nine months, the pattern is. Um, <laughs> and I'm knitting this thing on very small needles and I'm just, I, I want to get it done because it's going to be like a major guilt issue for me if I don't get it yeah. done. But, um, and I'm closer to getting it done. But, it, I mean, that stuff happens. I mean, because, you know, we, we do other things and you're trying to 
keep going with your art and do all the, you know, spin all the plates. So eventually you'll, you'll get what you want to get done there. And she's yeah. too small to know. She doesn't know that there's a mural on her wall. <laughs> she wouldn't really be able to appreciate it at this point. So, yeah. But it's funny because we all have stories like that where you have yeah. these grandiose plans and then, you know, life happens and <laughs> you get busy, you get tired, you know. So. Yeah, really, they don't need anything but a place to sleep. They need you to love them and yeah. I realized she doesn't need any of this stuff. Like, her room is so basic. She has a crib and a little bookshelf. That's it, you know? And it's like, I don't need any of this other stuff, and that's the way it is. Yeah, well, and otherwise it just clutters it up, you know? Yeah, all yeah. These... so it's like you live to learn, learn to live simpler, and um, I think things are easier then. I have to agree with you. Well, I appreciate so much your time. Thank you. And... That was Catherine Shaughnessy, author of The New Cruel, Exquisite Designs in Contemporary Embroidery. Thanks, Catherine, for inspiring crafters across the globe. To Cruel Again, it's wonderful to see this art form revived. Check out CraftSanity.com for links to Catherine's site and information about her art, her book, and how you can get one of those really cool Cruel kits. This week I'm going to post a Catherine Shaughnessy-inspired project idea, so stop by and check that out. And here's a reminder to all you knitters out there. June 10th is Worldwide Knitting in Public Day, so get ready to take your needles to the streets. I'd like to see the day expand, just because I never really follow anyone's directions exactly as they're written, including my own. So I think it would be great if people who make things, whatever you make, would go out and work on art or craft in public and try it out on the 10th. Bring your projects out, work where people can see you, and they can admire your work and ask you questions. And if you like it, keep doing that. I know I always have a project with me, and I'm definitely not shy about crafting wherever I am, whether it's a waiting room or a restaurant. You know, the way I look at it is time is valuable, and if we love to craft and make art, we should do it whenever we can. I once showed a woman how to cast on while I waited for a table at an Outback Steakhouse, and I thought that was really fun, and I think she did too. And the funny part about it is that we probably would not have spoken Otherwise, if I would have just been sitting there with my family, it's kind of fun, the interactions you can have with people when you're making something. Because people are curious. Maybe they'll get hooked and want to make something, too. So, anyway, June 10th is the Worldwide Knitting and Public Day, so take to the streets. Thanks to those of you who responded to last week's request for eco-friendly crafting ideas. You've pointed me to some very interesting artists who create wonderful work with recycled materials. Please keep the project ideas and guest suggestions coming, and don't be shy about sending photos of cool projects you've made yourself. My hope is to be able to post some fantastic project ideas on the website when I release the green Craft Sanity episodes in the coming weeks. If you make something with craft supplies that grow in nature, I'm interested in hearing about that too. So, you know, whether you're recycling or using natural materials... And feel free to write me if you, even if you don't have a green project idea. I love hearing from you all. So keep sending those questions, comments, and creative ideas my way. I want to hear all about it. And if you have a, just an interesting story about some project you're working on or something that you're doing, I'm very interested in stories, too. I'm kind of a story collector. So feel free to send things my way because this, my show is kind of whatever I want it to be. (laughs) So if there's something that you want it to be, let me know and maybe we can collaborate. I'll meet you back here next week. 
in the meantime, have a fabulous time, and don't forget to craft sanity. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.